Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 47, The Day God Died. Today I interviewed Dr. Joel B. Green, Dean and Professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, to discuss physicalism, which is that view of the human soul I discussed in previous episodes with Dr. Glenn Peoples. Dr. Green joins me to answer what, for me, has been a real stumbling block to accepting physicalism. But I'm not going to give that away, you're going to have to listen to the whole thing to hear it. Before we get into the interview, I do want to share a little story that has developed since I published yesterday's episodes. It just so happens that since then I've been involved in a debate over at Theology Web for the physicalist's response to Luke 23:43, where Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Critics of physicalism often point to this verse as proving that when, he, when the thief was to die, his soul would immediately be ushered into the presence of God in heaven, awaiting the resurrection. But as you might recall, if you listened to my interview with Dr. Peoples, he offered up two responses to this challenge, one of which is really often dismissed, prematurely I think, by Christian apologists. Namely, his argument was, the comma should appear after the word today, depicting Jesus as saying, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now while this argument is often met with incredulity and is quickly dismissed as being completely nonsense, Glenn's argument is based on more than just physicalist presuppositions. In other words, he's not merely reading his bias into the text, although there might be some of that there. While dualists will correctly point out that this would be the only place out of over a hundred in which the phrase truly I say to you includes more than just those words, Glenn alleges that this would also be the only place in which the Greek word for today is connected with the verb which follows it, rather than with the verb which precedes it. Skeptical, after publishing those interviews, I did some research, and actually concluded that it seemed Glenn was right. Now fast forward to several days ago, and my friend Michael Burgos, who has appeared several times on my podcast, he emailed me challenging me with this verse again, and I explained to him the rule that I just mentioned. So he went and did some further research, and not long after I published yesterday's episodes, he published an article at Theology Web in which he attempted to demonstrate, among other things, that there are, in fact, several places in the New Testament and the Septuagint in which today modifies the verb that follows it, and not the verb which comes before it. Now, initially, I doubted his argument, and then upon taking a closer look, I found it compelling. But after looking still more closely, I came to the conclusion that, no, I think the rule that Dr. Peoples had referred to remains intact, unchallenged by Mike's article. A much longer story made short, here's the deal. From what I can tell, whenever the Greek word for today appears between two verbs within a single clause, it is always connected with the verb which comes before it rather than the one which comes after. Every single text I've looked at, indeed texts with, that I originally challenged Glenn with before, fits within this rule. And since, in Luke 23, 43, today apparently falls between the verbs say and will be in a single clause, this would be the one exception to the rule. And if I'm right, this would mean that either way, Jesus is breaking a rule. Either he's breaking one rule by saying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, or he's breaking a different rule by saying, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I just don't see a way around it. Now perhaps you're interested in, uh, not interested in this, but since today's interview is a discussion about physicalism, and since this all happened between yesterday's episodes and today's, I figured I'd tell you a little bit about it. And in case you are interested, I'll include a link in the show notes to my friend Mike's article and my comments which followed. Well, next up in my promo rotation is Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Dr. Michael Lurakis. Can anyone really know whether or not God exists? Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus the Son of God? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Lurakis, and we are the hosts of Evidence for Faith, the radio show now airing on Sundays from 4 to 5 p.m. at 10.20 a.m. Lots of people believe in God, but they don't think it's possible to know for certain that He really does exist. They believe because they think they ought to. Join us and our interesting guests as we explain the evidences 
so that you can know for certain that God exists, the Bible is a divinely inspired book, and that Jesus is the Son of God and was raised from the dead. So whether you're seeking answers for yourself or helping others who have doubts, Evidence for Faith will provide the encouragement and assurance you need. That's Evidence for Faith every Sunday from 4 to 5 p.m. where we are helping Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. And check us out online at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. I've very often found this show interesting, and it discusses a wide variety of topics. Just listen to the past several episodes' titles. Christian Foundation of the West, Atheism, Free Will, and Freud, Visit to Israel, Peter Boyce on the Constitution, Dr. Tim McGrew, Incidental Illusions. Uh, that last one I found particularly interesting, and I'm beginning to think I should get Tim on as a guest on my show so you can find out why. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Evidence for Faith is a radio show which airs in southern New Jersey, Sundays from 4 to 5 Eastern Time on WIBG, 1020 a.m., and it streams live at WIBG.com. But like all the shows I promote, it's available in the form of a podcast as well, and you can find it in the iTunes store. Or just go to the website at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And with that, let's move into today's interview. Today I'm joined by Dr. Joel Green, Associate Dean for the Center for Advanced Theological Studies and Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Green has written or edited 30 or more books, including several award-winning ones, serves on the editorial boards for journals and book series, and has 12 years' worth of experience in pastoral ministry, as, as well as 25 years' worth of seminary teaching experience in multiple countries. Today, Joel takes time out of his schedule to join me to discuss that view of the human soul, which some call physicalism. Joel, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thanks. Good to be here. Joel, one of my favorite things about having the opportunity to interview so many diverse guests is hearing their personal stories, their, their testimonies in particular. Would you mind sharing yours with us, how, how it is that you became a believer and how your faith has developed? Uh, sure. Uh, I was raised in West Texas in a pretty traditional church. Uh, my parents were active uh, there in the church, and so in some ways it was a pretty natural thing uh, for me to develop in my own faith. I actually came to a saving knowledge of Christ though when I was 12 years old. Uh, as a result, interestingly enough, of um, uh, reading Romans. Hmm. Gideons had come to uh, our school, if you can imagine the days when that could happen, <laughs> yeah. and passed out New Testaments and uh, I thought since I was uh, myself active in the church, I should be reading uh, the New Testament. And so I was reading uh, the New Testament, and uh, as a consequence of that, uh, accepted Christ and, you know, and immediately uh, was already an active in church and so active in the youth group, uh, active all the way through college in a college group off to seminary and so on. So it's been a, a, a pretty um, a smooth path in that respect, not a lot of ups and downs hmm. in terms of, uh, uh, you know, falling away or, or leaving the faith of my parents, that sort of thing. That never really happened in my case. True. Well, as I mentioned when I introduced you, you're currently the professor at uh, Fuller and a, and a dean there as well. And according to the source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, Fuller's been described as arguably the most influential seminary by number of pastors and educators trained. I'm curious, what led you to Fuller, and, and how did you get to the position you're in today? Well, I, um, I've had good relationships with faculty at Fuller for a number of years. When I was originally, you know, back in the late 80s, uh, at New College for Advanced Christian Studies in Berkeley. Um, used to have fuller faculty uh, sometimes come up to teach summer school and so on. So I've had good relationships for a long time. I'd been at Asbury Seminary in Central Kentucky 
from 1997 to 2007, and so had uh, been involved in an evangelical seminary in the Wesleyan tradition there in Kentucky, and um, could easily have stayed there from the standpoint of uh, vision and commitment. Hmm. I was very interested, though, in being a part of a, a seminary that was deliberately uh, focused on the larger world of theological education in Fuller, in part because of its context here in Southern California, and in part because of this huge number of alums that we have spread all over the world, has a global perspective that uh, is not often the case in seminary education in the United States. Hmm. I also wanted to be a part of a context like Fuller, where uh, there was room for conversation within the evangelical family, uh, so that one, you know, where I was at, at Asbury, everybody uh, on faculty, everyone was out of the Wesleyan tradition. At Fuller, there's a variety, Presbyterians, uh, Pentecostals, Baptists and Anabaptists, and so on. So being a part of a context where um, you had to deal with varieties of traditions within the evangelical stream of the church, that was, a, that was a, a, an important thing for me. And I think uh, the direction that the church needs to go in the 21st century is one that that tries to find partnerships across tradition lines. And so that's that's uh, what drove me here. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, when I originally contacted you after Nancy Murphy pointed me in your direction, you pointed out that some of the questions that I had for you then would be better posed to others given your areas of expertise. Uh, as obviously you're aware, the dialogue between dualists and physicalists spans a variety of disciplines, philosophy, biology, theology, scripture, and a host of others. So tell us, what is your expertise and what kinds of questions regarding physicalism might better be directed to others? Well, uh, obviously, I'm a New Testament professor, and so that shapes uh, my interests and abilities in a certain direction. Um, and, for example, uh, when I'm talking about the anthropology of Scripture, I tend not to use the language of dualism or physicalism, hmm. because I don't think that Scripture itself provides the kind of a finely tuned uh, language that philosophers like to use in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. I have a friend who teaches science and theology who says that uh, philosophers seem to have as many uh, words to describe human essences as uh, uh, you have oranges in Florida. <laughs> Just an incredible variety of possibilities. And so I tend to use the language of monism when I talk about Scripture uh, one thingism as opposed to two thingisms. Um, uh. I also did um, uh, work at the University of Kentucky in in neuropsychology, neuroscience, history of neuroscience, and so I can uh, speak to those kinds of issues as well. But I am not a philosopher, and uh, the kinds of writing that I've done are are not particularly. Uh, philosophical in orientation. Hmm. So then, questions of philosophy, and, and uh, you, you also mentioned when I originally emailed you, uh, non-reductive physicalism, those are the kinds of questions that might be better directed towards others. Well, take non-reductive physicalism as an example. Uh, that's a position with which, on the surface of things, I'm quite happy to embrace, in part because it, it it's simple. Um I'm quite happy to talk about physicalism, and I'm quite happy, quite happy to point out that when people like Nancy Murphy use that language, they don't mean that we reduce what it means to be human simply to their, uh, to, to physics. Um, the problem is that when you get into philosophical conversations or uh, conversations with philosophy of mind people, uh, for reasons that I'm not clear on, Non-reductive physicalism becomes a lightning rod for all kinds of problems that I didn't see coming. Hmm. And that's why, as I say, when I refer to uh, Scripture, for example, in my book, Body, Soul, and Human Life, I, I don't 
I don't lay out a position that would be called non-reductive physicalism because I'm not trying to deal with the evidence at that kind of level. I see. Okay. Well, so before we dive into the topic at hand, um, there are a couple of questions that, I'll be honest, I was kind of hesitant to ask. Um, but I have a very conservative theologically listener base, I think. And so for them, I think these questions are important. From what I understand, Fuller's founders really wanted to stand out from the Christian crowd, which it seems to me often takes a somewhat anti-intellectual position. And I think that's great. I, I really admire it. But on the other hand, Fuller appears to have a somewhat negative reputation as being liberal amongst many of us who would call ourselves theologically conservative. Uh, Dr. James White, for example, of Alpha and Omega Ministries, he received an MA from Fuller, but he often comments on his show about how liberal he thinks Fuller is. Um, and, of course, there's an infamous book on hell published recently whose author also received a degree there. So the question I have for you is, do you think that there's any truth to the claim that Fuller leans in a liberal direction? And, and how would you respond to any of my listeners who might be skeptical of what you're going to have to say today given your involvement there? Well, you've, you've asked a multitude of questions there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it is true, for example, that Rob Bell is one of our graduates, but, you know, so is John Papper, and so is, um, uh, uh, well, there's just a wide variety, 30-something thousand alums hmm. from full. And so it's, it's probably not a surprise to discover that there are people all over the theological map that would have come through Fuller in the same way that one can find people who went to other seminaries that uh, stayed more or less on the path that the seminary laid out or may have taken a turn to the left or to the right. So uh, it's hard to judge a seminary on the basis of one or two alums. Sure. Um, I, I find that questions about whether Fuller is conservative or liberal or, or liberal are often... Uh, really a matter of how you lay out the theological terrain or how you map things. Uh, where where I've been, for example, when I used to teach in Berkeley, uh, the idea that Fuller would be liberal is almost laughable, as you can imagine, uh, because if you're standing in a place that's uh, pretty far to the left, uh, imagining that Fuller is even further to the left is... <laughs> is uh, problematic. Sure. On the other hand, there are places where one might stand farther to the right where Dallas Seminary would be liberal or where Talbot Seminary would be liberal mm. and obviously where Fuller Seminary would be liberal. So it's all a matter of where you locate things. I think the most important thing to say, though, is that uh, Fuller's statement of faith is very much uh, rooted in the tradition of classical orthodoxy in the you know, there's nothing in Fuller's statement of faith that would be contrary to uh, the Nicene Creed, for example, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Uh, so Fuller locates itself very clearly within the great tradition of the church and in more recent years within the evangelical stream of the church. Uh, regarding your, li your listeners, I think that the most important thing would not be whether I come from a seminary that they regard as too conservative or too liberal, I think the important thing would be to ask whether uh, the kinds of answers I might give uh, seem to be within the tradition, that is, within the tradition of uh, Orthodox Christian faith and align themselves with Scripture. Sure. Yeah, I, I concur. I, I totally agree. And, well, and so let's very briefly talk about your personal views. Would you consider them to be what many of us conservatives would call orthodox? I mean, do you, you, you said that, you know, you mentioned the Nicene Creed and stuff like that, so I'm assuming you have a firm belief in the Trinity, but maybe salvation by faith alone, bodily resurrection of Christ and of all the dead in the future, stuff like that? What did you, what was the last thing you just said? The bodily resurrection of all the dead in the future. Oh, oh, I see, I see your point. Uh, sure, uh, I am uh, very much uh, ready to embrace uh, the ecumenical creeds of the early church, the three of which I just mentioned. Um, I myself am out of the Wesleyan tradition, which means that uh, we hold to the 39 articles of the Anglican Church. The place where I find uh, I run into difficulty with uh, some people who regard themselves as evangelicals in the same way that I do is that I'm not a Calvinist. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, when one wants to define evangelical or conservative, specifically in Calvinist terms, and that often happens, 
at those points, then I look less conservative because, as I say, I am not a Calvinist. I am a Wesleyan. Sure. Yeah, and I respect that, and, and I, I have seen that at times, although I will say most of the Calvinists like myself that I know would would consider Wesleyans and, and other Armenians to be well within orthodoxy, and I, I certainly feel that way. So, um, Anyway, well, well, let's dive into today's topic then. Uh, I'd like to start with the development of your personal belief in physicalism. Uh, have you always been a physicalist? And if not, without giving too much away, since I'm going to be asking a little bit more later, what is it that convinced you? Well... What happened is that um, a couple of people, Nancy Murphy, one of them, asked me to be a part of a working group that uh, eventually wrote the book, Whatever Happened to the Soul. And I was the, as I I say to them, I was the token Bible person. (laughs) Uh, There were philosophers and neuroscientists and uh, theologians and so on. And I was the, the one Bible person there. And what I did was just began to look at some of the evidence, uh, some of it in, in uh, classical work like Aristotle and in Plato to see what kind of background uh, might have informed uh, the New Testament. I also began working, of course, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament materials themselves. And uh, I would say that before I did that, I would have been uh, sort of a traditional uh, a person who would say, uh, yeah, dualism, uh, which is to say I, it's not something I would have thought about a great deal. It's not something I had invested a lot of uh, study into. Uh, but as I began to do that, I began to see immediately the degree to which uh, the views uh, that now we regard as traditional, that is, the body-soul dualism that we regard as traditional, uh, are not as traditional as I might have imagined. In fact, mm. a lot of what I saw was a, a reading of Scripture and the theological tradition from the standpoint of René Descartes, from Cartesian dualism. And then I began to see that uh, translations of even some of the classics uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century made some of the classic classical authors more Cartesian uh, than they would have been in the first century A.D., first century B.C. It was just an interesting thing to see the degree to which Descartes shaped the way that we were thinking. Hmm. And then when I began to look at what was going on in the early church, when I say early church, at this point I'm thinking second, third, fourth centuries, I began to see that there was a lot of influence uh, from the Alexandrian Jew Philo, who was himself a Neoplatonist, uh, there was a lot of influence from him. Uh, he went even further than Plato had gone himself into dualism, uh, specifically in, in Philo's reading of the Genesis 1 and 2 account of uh, creation of humanity. Hmm. I, I just began to see that there were influences there that were not as grounded in Scripture as I had been uh, led to imagine, and there was less grounding in Scripture than one might have anticipated for the tradition. I see. And that just sort of started the, started the ball rolling, so to speak? Right. Uh, one one uh, group led to another. I was involved in, an, in another research group where, again, I was the one Bible person. There were more theologians and philosophers, and then a whole host of neuroscientists uh, after that. And that led to another book, uh, From Cells to Souls, it's called. Uh, and that led to another. And, you know, so there was a whole series of opportunities for study. And in the end, that's what led me to do some graduate work in neuroscience, because I was finding myself in conversation so often with neuroscientists, I thought I'd like to do that from inside the conversation rather than as an outsider. Right. Yeah, I see. Well, let me ask you, what are some of the kinds of reactions you get um, as a Christian physicalist or monist, however you want to put it? Uh, The reason I ask is a number of episodes back, I interviewed a friend of mine, and we talked about some really nasty reactions that we've witnessed on the part of professing Christians, even what I would call really unloving treatment of those who would hold the views like yours. Do, Do you encounter some of these same kind of reactions? And if so, how do you think that we could improve the dialogue? 
Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I, when I'm doing public presentations, or sometimes even in my writing, uh, all I'm trying to do often is simply say, there's room for conversation here that we might not have imagined. Hmm. Uh, and so rather than trying to say, you know, dualism is, is really wrong, or, you know, monism is the only way you can read scripture, uh, what I'm really trying to do is, is say, you know, there's possibilities for reading these materials in ways that we haven't taken seriously. And so what I'm trying to do is, is uh, open up the conversation. I think sometimes what we find ourselves doing is arguing less over what the Bible says and more over what we've always imagined the Bible says. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, in fact, this always happens when I speak on this subject. Someone will say, hey, but but what about, and then they'll fill in the blank with some text. <laughs> and they'll say, yeah, but if what you're saying is true, then what about that text in Matthew? Or what about that text in the book of Revelation? And, you know, my response is always similar because what I say is we've we've been so accustomed to reading the Old and New Testaments from the standpoint of dualism. Right. Or as if the heading was dualism, that we can't imagine any other way to read these texts. Sure. And so the question is, can we just step back for a little while and ask, is it possible to read these texts from another perspective? Because uh, it's simply not the case that uh, uh, dualism is the only way to read X, Y, or Z text. So that's a lot of what I try to do. Now, you ask, um, uh, what are some of the reactions? And uh, I would say that in many cases, the reactions are simply shock, hmm. surprise. Uh, people are not accustomed to hearing any other way of reading Scripture than from the perspective of body-cell dualism. And so often they're surprised. And then, as I say, the reaction is, well, what about this or what about that? What I find fascinating, uh, Chris, is that it's often the case that the first place people want to go is eschatology. <laughs> uh, almost nothing matters in these conversations for a lot of people than eschatology. For example, <laughs> right now on the um, uh, Scott McKnight's blog, the Jesus Creed uh, blog, they're doing a, a series of blog posts on my book, Body, Soul, and Human Life. And when that started a few weeks ago, immediately uh, the responses were, yeah, but what about when you die? What happens when you die? What about eschatology? And I find that so interesting because the truth is we don't know a lot about what happens when we die. Right. Uh, what we have is uh, anticipatory. Uh, we have witnesses to what happens, but but we don't have phenomenological knowledge of what happens. And uh, so I find it difficult to imagine why we should try to build our anthropology based on an eschatology about which we actually know very little instead of the other way around. Sure. Thinking about what we do know something about, anthropology, and then asking uh, how can that eventuate in uh, the kind of vision of eternal life that the scriptures lay out. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and just to touch on the eschatology issue, what, what I find ironic is that the physicalists with whom I've spoken um, are actually far more consistent with Christian orthodoxy when it comes to uh, the bodily resurrection of the dead than many dualists who, in today's culture, seem to think of the eternal state as being some sort of heavenly, ethereal realm. But you know, Glenn Peoples, for example, my friend, he's one of the most staunchest defenders of the resurrection, you know. So I just, I guess I find that kind of ironic. Well, it's true. Uh, one of the statements that uh, we often talk about in, in these conversations is, one, the creed, uh, I believe in the resurrection of the body, uh, which does not say anything about a uh, flight of the soul at the moment of death. I right. believe in the resurrection of the body. And then related to that is uh, the point that uh, I, I think probably you've heard Glenn make as well. Uh, when people die, they really die. Hmm. And so rather than imagining that the human person in this world 
has some immortal substance that carries them over from this life to the next, uh, the physicalist believes that when you die, you really die, and that the only hope you have for eternal life is, in fact, God's act of new creation. Right. And so resurrection becomes not a, uh, a, a, uh, an intrinsic or inherent possibility of human beings. It becomes rather a miraculous act on God's behalf sure. or on God's part. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I was going to ask you to summarize for us what physical is, but I think you've, you've just done that. Is there, is there anything more you want to add to that just before we start to talk about evidence for it? Well, let me, let me just point out that one of the issues that I often run into is that people can't imagine uh, that physicalism can be true because they have what I would call an anemic view of soma or body as it's usually translated. If, if we have to rethink uh, psuche, soul, life, uh, life, uh, energy, vitality, if we have to rethink uh, psuche, then we also have to rethink uh, soma, our body. That is, the capacities uh, that uh, the body has have to be rethought. Dualism from Plato forward has, generally speaking, had a diminished view of the body. Mm. Uh, it's uh, often, in fact, I, I read people talk about how the soul is the real human life and the soul is, is now captured or contained within... Uh, bodies, you know, that sort of view doesn't have a very high view of body. Sort of like a ghost in the machine. Yeah, there you go. That's uh, that's very much getting back to the Cartesian uh, inheritance that we have. Uh, so, I uh, the notion of physicalism, we have to take seriously the possibility of emergent properties that allow for human capacities that under a dualistic view become problematic. Okay. I'm not sure can you can you unpack that just a little bit so I can understand? I'm not sure what you mean. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Uh the uh sort of crass example I give sometimes when I'm talking in churches is that when we see one baby, we say what a darling, what a cutie. When we have 30 in one room, then we may say other things. Uh, there's there's lots of noise. There's crying. It's uh, their crying is contagious. It moves from one and and so we don't usually think first in terms of uh, what a cute baby this is. In the same way, uh, when when the body reaches a certain level of complexity, I'm thinking specifically about the mind. When when the mind reaches a certain level of complexity, then it has properties where the sum is greater than the parts. Does that make sense? Yes. So rather than add, you know, one plus one plus one, we put them all together and we have capacities that we would not have had one at a time. That's what I mean by emergent properties. And so the possibility uh, that you and I have of, as it were, standing on our own shoulders and looking at what we're talking about, you know what I mean? Right. This capacity for uh, stepping back and examining our own views of things stepping back and reflecting on what we're about to say before we've even said it. That capacity, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And I would say the same thing, for example, about our capacity for spirituality, our capacity for human relationship, our capacities for engaging in the world as we've been given the vocation by God to do. Those would all be emergent properties that are bigger than the sum of the whole. Yeah, I understand Sure, I understand that. I guess what I was not understanding was you said something about that being problematic for dualists. Do you just mean that they find it difficult to understand how, given a monistic model, those properties could really truly emerge in that sense? If you have spent, uh, if, if you think specifically in terms of the soul having all of those properties, uh, then it's hard to imagine uh, that the body has them. Because it's, you know, at some point you have to say, what's, what's a soul for? Hmm. And if um, if you've been used to saying that a body can't do that, and then a, a physicalist comes along and says it's all body, then that becomes problematic. Sure. And so what I'm saying is, uh, if you move from a dualist to a monist position, then you also have to rethink 
what body might mean, because otherwise you might not imagine that bodies are capable of such things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I get you now. Well, okay, so let, given your areas of expertise, um, would you mind laying out for us, if possible, a positive biblical and theological case for physicalism? I, I say this because the physicalists I've spoken to wouldn't just say that the Bible is neutral, but that it actually does, in fact, teach physicalism, at least to some extent or another. Would you say that that's the case? Well, I think it's pretty clear uh, in the uh, Old Testament that, in the first case, the Bible is not very concerned about what we might call essences, hmm. uh, the parts of a body. Uh, the Old Testament approaches the human person as an integrated whole and defines humans predominantly in relational terms, relationship to God, relationship to each other, relationship to the created order. And so the Old Testament is, is uh, pretty clear that what we have to do with is uh, what I've called monism, uh, a one-thingism. The New Testament has often been regarded as providing different evidence, and usually that's because it's assumed that the Greek world of the first century was a dualist world, influenced then by, say, Plato. Hmm. And therefore, New Testament writers who have been influenced by Greek philosophy would have brought Greek philosophy into the New Testament. So that's kind of been the working assumption, and that's why people have sometimes said Old Testament monism, New Testament dualism. There are two problems with that. The first is it assumes that Greek philosophy in the first century was dualist. Right. When, in fact, Greek philosophy in the first century was a mixture of possibilities, of anthropological possibilities, some more dualist, some more monist. So there's a variety. So if you can first say that New Testament writers brought with them influence from their Greek background, you still haven't answered the question what influence they've had. Sure. Make sense far? Absolutely. The second issue is uh, that model assumes that the primary influence of New Testament writers was their Greek background rather than their immersion in the Old Testament, in the scriptures of God's people. Right. To the degree that the scriptures of Israel were influential on the New Testament writers, that's the degree to which you would assume that the bias would be toward a monist position. So uh, that's that sort of represents where the discussion generally has uh, has uh, focused. Now, if I were going to make a case for monism, it would be simply that uh, if you look at salvation, in speci- uh, specifically in the New Testament, since that's the material that's usually talked about, if you look at salvation, then it's hard to make distinctions between what I shall call now spiritual salvation and social salvation and psychological salvation and so on, uh, the the message of salvation in the New Testament is focused on human beings, mm. not on parts of human beings. Uh, so the idea of saving a soul, for example, uh, to use language uh, that I grew up with in, <laughs> in West Texas, that's just not the kind of language you're going to find floating around there in the New Testament. Right. You find you find saving uh, souls maybe in Acts 27, when it's pretty clear that when the people are rescued there in the sea, you know the the voyage, uh, the uh, the storm at sea, the word soul there is simply a stand-in for human lives. Yeah, there were X number of souls there on the ship. So generally speaking, salvation is not something that can be focused on one part of the human person. Similarly, the problems that people have, generally speaking, are not, you know, soulless problems or physical problems or biological problems. They're just plain old everyday human problems. And our capacity to separate soul and body uh, is not something that can easily be read back into these texts when they're read within their larger contexts. Uh, it's only after you assume that, for example... Uh, healing must be biological, that, then you can say, well, 
this is a, a story about the healing of a person's body. Mm-hmm. As though a person has a body instead of is a body. Or a person has a soul as opposed to just being a soul. Right. So, from my perspective, uh, the strongest argument in favor of monism is, in fact, a soteriological argument. That is, an argument about salvation. One can go to specific texts. One can look at Revelation 18, or one can look at uh, the way 1 Peter uses the language of body, soul, spirit, and so on. And one can make a case for monism. Uh, but I, I don't think that the issue can be resolved on, uh, on word usage, philology, all by itself. I think you have to look at these larger, uh, contours, these larger theological themes that suggest to you that what's going on is bigger than some part of a human person. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, and I just want to add to it, uh, one of the things you've mentioned a few times, um, has really been what has shifted me to the fence from dualism, which is that a friend of mine has a phrase that he often says. He says, if you were born and grew up your whole life wearing blue glasses, how would you see the world? And the typical yep. answer is blue, but that's not the correct answer. The correct answer is you would see it as normal. And and so what, what has dawned on me as I've investigated this debate is that people point to a host of texts, as you pointed out, but the reason they do so is because they've read, it, they've read their own... Um, way they see the world into the the text through those glasses they wear. And now that I've begun to look at the text, trying to take those glasses off, I find the case for monism pretty compelling. You know what I mean? Well, it's a good point. Uh, Sometimes I think about it this way. Uh, If I'm doing a crossword puzzle, and the heading for the crossword puzzle is famous composers, uh, then... When I think up the word Beethoven, then I assume that what I'm talking about is a famous composer. But if the heading is famous dogs in movies or something, <laughs> well, there's another Beethoven, but it's a completely different way of looking at those same words. Uh, Beethoven, soul, spirit, you know, whatever it is. Right. So I think you're quite right to, to uh, think along those terms. Yeah. Well, so do you think that philosophy of mind, as, as you pointed out, this area of discussion is often called, do you think this is more than just an intellectual academic question to be debated by sort of erudite professors at the tops of ivory towers? Or, or is there some practical importance, do you think, to falling down on the right side of this debate? Well, I think it's, I think it's a huge issue. Uh, for example, uh, I think the place that I was uh, most surprised when I started thinking about these issues and after I started going back to do graduate work in neuroscience, the thing that I was most surprised about was uh, the importance of the church became far more clear to me than it had before. In other words, this conversation has huge ecclesiological uh, theology of the church implications. Hmm. Because what this suggests, or doesn't suggest, what this demonstrates is that uh, we are always in the process of being formed relationally. And so, if you don't mind me putting it this way, who we hang out with has huge ramifications for what kind of people we will become. Hmm. And so, if, if what we have is, um, is a, a monist position which assumes that we are always in the process of being formed in relationship, then how we relate to the world, how we relate to God, how we relate to other people, uh, actually makes a difference in the kinds of people we are becoming. I, I think that's a huge issue. As I've already begun to suggest, I also think it has huge missiological or missional implications. When churches fight over whether to put their money into evangelism or into social action, they are making an anthropological statement. They're beginning to ask the question, which is more important, bodies, feed the hungry, uh, clothe the naked, or souls, evangelism? So this dichotomy works itself out into the mission of the church so that at church committee meetings or whatever, there are fights going on uh, budget meetings, there are fights going on, strategic planning meetings, there are fights going on that are basically anthropological fights. Hmm. 
though they're not named that way. It's about how you understand what it means to be human. Uh, if you think that what really matters about the human being is the soul, then then you ought to be putting your your uh, money and your strategic planning and your programming into how to make sure people get from this life to the next. But if you think God is concerned about human beings as wholes, just human beings, then you have to be thinking about uh, the message of the kingdom in more holistic terms. Right. Uh, as I say, I just think that's a, a, a hugely critical issue. We could even push that further by talking about the relationship between the human being and the church and the human being and God's creation. Because if, if in fact, what it means to be human is to be part of what God is doing in the cosmos, then how I understand my spirituality, how I understand the mission of the church, how I understand my vocation before God, my call before God, cannot not take into account the world in which I live. Hmm. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I was particularly uh, persuaded by um, your, your second point there. I mean, uh, if, like you said, if we, if we view the, the human being as holistic, then we need to focus energies in both areas, not just one or the other. Um, so, well, let's shift gears uh, because, as you know, <laughs> I reached out to you for a, for a very specific uh, reason. And if, you, if you'll bear with me for just a minute so I can explain this for my listeners, because I haven't really told them yet. Um, after those episodes that I had with my friend, uh, I had little reason to continue affirming dualism, uh, at least aside from tradition, which perhaps for no other reason than that, I remained on the fence. But, but then later, I discovered some what seemed to be Christological implications that I find troubling and which I can't, frankly, at this point accept. Um, I reached out to my friend and then later to Nancy Murphy, and they both told me that you were the go-to guy to these questions. Now, in short, as again, as you know, here's my dilemma. If, as monists or physicalists seem to say, humans are not conscious and are in no way alive between death and resurrection, then since Christ is fully human, neither was he conscious or in any way alive between his death and resurrection. But because Christ is also fully God, if physicalism is true, then it seems one must accept one of two inescapable conclusions, either that Jesus as God remained conscious and alive while his human body and, and the human mind dependent on it lay dead in the grave, or Jesus died both in terms of his humanity and his deity. Uh, to put it kind of bluntly, God died. But but it seems to me that both of these views would be considered heresy by many Orthodox Christians. Um, and I'll admit that I really struggled with even considering either of them because, and I'm almost done here, so bear with me. If, if Jesus remained conscious and alive as God, then it seems there were three days during which Jesus was no longer fully human. Um, but on the other hand, uh, if God died, if the, if the Son died as God, then it would seem that... Um, God is divisible because the Father and Spirit remained alive, that he's mutable because he's able to go from living to non-living, and that he's not eternal. Um, so what would you say to someone like me who now is now on the fence but really finds this dilemma troubling? Do, do you hold to either of these views, and uh, or is there maybe a third option that I'm missing? Well, uh, when it comes to Jesus, there are, of course, uh, there is a, at least one more option that is uh, very much grounded in the early church and is even encapsulated in certain versions of the creeds. And that is that during those three days between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, uh, uh, the empty tomb, Jesus was actually, uh, how do they say it, uh, involved in the harrowing of hell. Uh, there are numerous texts uh, from the early 2nd century uh, up into the medieval period uh, that talk about Jesus overcoming uh, Thanatos, death, uh, overcoming uh, Diabolos, Satanas, you know, the devil or Satan, uh, preaching to the imprisoned, etc. And uh, there are a number of uh, texts in the New Testament that were actually read uh, in support of that view um, already, as I say, in the early 2nd century and into the... Uh, times of the ecumenical creeds. So that's one view, uh, and and that's a view that, generally speaking, Protestant evangelicals haven't embraced. My own work on First Peter, uh, for a commentary I did a couple of years ago, uh, didn't convince me uh, that that's the right reading of those New Testament texts, but it did uh, convince me that this was an option 
that a number of uh, Orthodox Christians, if, if the word makes sense, Orthodox Christians in the second, third centuries, uh, it's, it's, it's a view that many of our forebears shared and uh, has a, a long and significant tradition there in the church. Um, whether that's true or not, uh, I think the question that you're raising, uh, I would address in a different way. And that is, uh, your question assumes that there is a, uh, a some kind of length of time between someone's death and resurrection. Uh, I understand that way of thinking from the standpoint of the way we measure time. Uh, we measure time as it keeps on ticking seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and so on. And so from that perspective, uh, clearly there's a passage of time between the death of, of my grandmother and the general resurrection. Uh, the question that I'm wondering about, though, is what if you didn't think in terms of time the way that we measure time, but you think about a God who inhabits all times and therefore for whom all times are, are in, in, in every moment, present, all times present at any moment. If that's the case, then it makes sense, it seems to me, to say that there is, from the, from the viewpoint of the, or from the perspective of the person who has died, no passage of time between the time of one's death and one's resurrection. In other words, in the case of Jesus, uh, where was he in those three days? He was with God. That is to say, he was already in, if you will, God's person. And uh, so there's no passage of time where there's a separation between the Godhead, or within the Godhead, and no separation between uh, Jesus the human and Jesus the divine figure. Uh, it's not unlike uh, the perspective that Tom Wright puts forward in his book, uh, Surprised by Hope. He uses language uh, that has been used by others that... that it's it's a metaphor. It's a it's a little bit of a parable, and I guess it works, although it has some problems. He says that when uh, a person dies, uh, their software is uploaded into God's hard hardware uh, until they are given new hardware in which to download their software. Well, the idea, of course, is that personal identity. Uh, which is grounded in relatedness and in uh, memory over time, is taken up into God's being, and then when a human being is recreated, a new creation in the resurrection, then uh, they have that same identity. So if you take that kind of perspective, then you don't have the, uh, the time problem uh, that I think your question assumes. Yeah, and I, I find that interesting. I guess the, the the only problem I have with it, the only struggle I have with it, is it, it sort of sounds to me, in a sense, kind of like say, Back to the Future. You know, if um, if uh, if uh, Michael J. Fox time travels to twenty years in the future, from the perspective, uh, from his perspective, it's instantaneous, and and it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that from the human's perspective, it would be instantaneous, and from Christ's perspective, it would have been instantaneous. But what about those 20 years for the people that are there, during which time Michael J. Fox isn't present? It sounds to me like what you're proposing would mean that during those three days, from our perspective at least, the Son of God was no longer in existence. Can you help me understand where I'm wrong about that? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I can because I don't understand your question. I guess uh, I'm, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's immaterial what we think about where Jesus was. Uh, what is material is about where Jesus actually is. Hmm. And so I'm not sure why I should care uh, about whether we experience things in a certain way in time in this life. And I also uh, am not sure I understand the connection to Michael J. Fox. <laughs> Uh, because this is the view of time I'm laying out is is actually a very old one. Uh, Boethius, for example, takes this view. Um, but the the point is that uh, it's not that Michael J. Fox is is uh, 
here in 1995 or whenever those movies came right. out, and then is here again in 2010, uh, the perspective that I'm laying out is that God is in every time, uh, so he is not absent in one place and present in another. Uh, God is present to all time in the same way that we would say God is everywhere, uh, given the nature of the space-time continuum, then that would mean God is also in every time. If I am then taken up into God at death, uh, then I no longer experience time the way that I do in this life. Mm. I don't have a calendar. I don't have to look at Google anymore to find out what I'm doing today uh, because I'm not experiencing time this way. I'm experiencing time. Uh, uh, the way God experiences time. That's on the other side of of uh, existence, not on this side. Okay. All right. Well, it's it's interesting. It gives me something to think about. Um, and, uh, you know, we had talked about limiting this to 45 minutes, and I've already taken up four additional minutes of your time. So let, let's start to wrap up. What resources is would you most recommend for those of us who would like to study physicalism at greater depth? And, you know, don't be afraid, as you've already done a little bit, to toot your own horn. Um, you've written or edited a bunch of books that I think might be just what we're looking for. Well, the book that I've written is called Body, Soul, and Human Life, which is um, subtitled The Nature of Humanity in the Bible. And that's where I try to work at the interface of neuroscience and scripture. The basic issue uh, that I'm dealing with there is really a kind of apologetic issue because it's often assumed by philosophers and neuroscientists that they are disproving the Christian scriptures. Right. They're disproving Christian theology. And I'm trying to say, well, what kinds of issues are raised? by uh, these questions, and does that actually disprove Scripture? And the answer, as uh, you might know, is uh, actually I see Scripture and uh, neuroscience working along streams side-by-side, uh, side, moving in generally the same direction, although I think Scripture critiques neuroscience in some important ways, as I lay out in that book. The other two books that you uh, refer to are books I've edited, one is called What About the Soul, uh, and it's subtitled Neuroscience and Christian Anthropology. And that actually is the result of a conference on this subject that we held at Asbury Seminary back when I was there. And so you have, uh, say, an Old Testament professor dealing with the creation accounts. That would be Lawson Stone. Uh, Bill Arnold de deals with uh, the Witch of Endor and what kinds of issues that raises for monism and dualism. Uh, I deal with some... Uh, texts in Luke and especially the resurrection of Jesus and the nature of his resurrection body um, uh, there are other texts, oh Pat Miller deals with the nature of humanity in the Psalms and in Hebrews so there are theologians uh, philosophers neuroscientists, Bible people in that book and then the other book is called In Search of the Soul Perspectives on the Mind-Body Problem, which just came out in a second edition with uh, Whip and Stock. And that's an interesting book because what we did there was uh, I introduced the issues really from a biblical and scientific perspective, and then four philosophers a look at the question of the mind-body issue from four different perspectives. So one will be uh, dualism, another emergent dualism, another Nancy Murphy, non-reductive physicalism, and then the other is Kevin Corcoran, who teaches up at Calvin uh, College, and he deals with what he calls a constitution view of the human person. Uh, there are a number of other books, though, that one could go to besides the one I've written, uh, and an easy way to access some of those possibilities is a, is a, a, a faculty guide, I guess is what we call them, here at Asbury, I'm sorry, here at Fuller, uh, that I put together on the human person. And that can be reached at campusguides.fuller.edu uh, slash human person. And uh, what I've got there are uh, some suggested books for getting started from philosophers, neuroscientists, biblical scholars, and theologians. And then I also list some uh, books 
from some of my colleagues here at Fuller who deal with cognitive sciences or with philosophy of mind. Okay, and uh, I'll include links in, in the show notes to all of those so that it's a little easier for my listeners to find. And, and I just want to thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy. I know that I'm a tiny podcast. Just thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with me. Sure, thanks, Chris. So there you have it. Uh, that was Dr. Joel Green on physicalism or monism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and his uh, answer to the particular dilemma that I faced. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm still left with questions. I'm not 100% certain that I can um, buy into it. Uh, but he did affirm neither of the two heresies I mentioned, either the violation of the hypostatic union that Jesus ceased being man for three days, nor that Jesus died as God. Um, and uh, so it may very well be that he's got a way, that physicalists have a way of avoiding this dilemma. I don't know. Let me know what you think. Email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com and stay tuned for the next episode of the Theapologetics podcast, either next week, which might be Michael Glatz, former uh, former homosexual and now staunch defender of the biblical sexu sexuality, or the following week, which will be Mike Felker, who's going to join me once again to talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses and their two-class theology. So stay tuned for whatever the next episode is. Until then. <laughs>